Hey, Matt Tuckman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Dhanan J. Jagannathan. With us today is Mark Schroeder, professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California, and he's here to discuss reasons for action and belief. Mark Schroeder, welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I think the idea of reasons for action and reasons for belief has some place in sort of common sense. I mean, we talk about, like, for what reason did Donna J. do that last week? You know, it's a little bit stilted, but, we, you know, we kind of think in that way. But maybe we could just sort of open with some examples of acting, believing, and reasons for doing these things. Sure. So I think it's useful to distinguish between different ways in which we use the word reason. But take, for example, the case of Ronnie who likes dancing, and he's been invited to a party this evening, and at the party there's going to be dancing. So that's the reason for Ronnie to go to the party. If he's trying to make up his mind, that's one of the things that it makes sense for him to take into account. If you were making a list of pros and cons of going to the party, that would be a pro. And if he goes to the party and you ask him why he came, he might tell you because there's going to be dancing here. And so even before he goes, The fact that there's dancing at the party seems like it counts in favor of his going to the party. It's a pro. And in that sense, it's a reason to go there. And I think that's the interesting sense of reason. There's also a sense in which after he's come, and you ask him why he came, and he says, well, because there's dancing. Another way of putting that, perhaps a more stilted way of putting it, would be to say that the reason why he came is that there would be dancing there. And philosophers sometimes call that a motivating reason. And that's another way in which reasons can be talked about is the reason why somebody did something. But even if you don't do something, there can be reason to do it. And uh, that's also true in Ronnie's case. To take a case of belief, you might see that Caroline is smiling. And if you see Caroline smiling, that can be a reason to believe that she's happy because generally people smile when they're happy. And if you do believe she's happy, and I haven't seen her, and I ask you, is Caroline happy? And you say, yes. I'm going to ask you, why do you believe that? How do you know? And you might say, because I saw her smiling. And so in that case, even before you believe it, the fact that she's smiling is a reason for you to believe she's happy. Once you believe it, and I ask you why you believe it, the reason for which you believe it, that's a stilted way of talking about the idea that you believe it because she's happy. And so we can both talk about reasons before you believe that are reasons to believe. And once you believe, we can talk about the reasons why you believe. So we can make that same distinction. Is there anything special about reasons for belief? I mean, believing is one thing I might do among other things. Why should we think of reasons for belief as being anything other than just like a special case of reasons for action? Well, I don't think that believing something is an action. When philosophers at least talk about action, actions are things that you've made decisions to do. It's a very tricky question whether you can decide what to believe. 
one I don't really have an answer to, but if you can decide what to believe, it's very difficult because even if you really want to believe something, if it's really obviously not true, you're going to have a very hard time convincing yourself to believe it. For example, if you are in outside in Chicago in January, you might have a very hard time convincing yourself that it is warm. And so it's not it's difficult to decide what to believe. And so belief is an action. But I agree, in some sense, believing is something you can do. To believe something, it's expressed by a verb phrase. You believe this, you don't believe that. And in that sense, I think that we can think of reasons for belief as a special case of reasons to do something. And that's the way I prefer to think about it. I think that reasons for belief are just a special case of reasons to do something. So you said that it's hard to decide what to believe in the way that we decide to act. What about a case where I'm not sure about something in the world? I'm not sure about how Caroline is feeling, and I'm thinking to myself, I wonder what she's feeling. And I take into account the evidence that I have, and I notice, oh, she's smiling. She must be happy. And so I decide to, let's say, believe that she's happy. Is that a case of what you're talking about? Uh, It's a little bit different from what I had in mind. So I think... It's clearly true that we can decide what to believe in the sense that we can be not sure what to believe and then become sure what to believe. And the way we become sure what to believe is generally, for the most part, by thinking about the evidence. So I'm not sure whether Caroline's happy. I'll think about things like whether she's smiling, whether I know of any bad news that's happened to her recently, how she's treating other people, whether there's a a spring in her step, And those are the kinds of things that will lead me to make up my mind whether she's happy. But I don't generally think about the fact that I want her to be happy or that I'll feel better myself if I believe that she's happy because I insulted her and will feel guilty if uh, I think she that made her unhappy. Whereas with action, those kinds of things are relevant. I can think about whether I'll enjoy dancing while being at the party, and that's the kind of thing that can lead me to decide to go to the party. It's also true that when I believe something, it's generally not the result of forming an intention to believe it, whereas with action, it can often be the case, even if I sometimes act without first deciding to act, but I act spontaneously, pretty much everything I can do spontaneously, I could also do by thinking about it beforehand and making a decision in advance. And that doesn't seem like it's possible with belief. So in those ways, believing has at least some important differences from other kinds of things we could do that would qualify as actions. Another thing that is orthogonal to what I've just been saying, that you might think is a difference between believing and other kinds of action, is that facts about what you believe might not always be transparent to you. So sometimes... It might be true that you believe something and that only gradually becomes apparent to you about what you believe. But some philosophers believe that if you are acting and doing something, then you generally know that you're doing it. You know what you're doing while you're doing it. And if that's true, then it's plausible that could be another difference between belief and action in general. So it seems like most of the time we don't end up believing things because we're trying to, but could there be certain special cases where if I'm not sure about something and I really, really want to believe 
one of the alternatives, then it ends up happening that I do uh, believe it. So famously, uh, Pascal argued a long time ago that one important reason to believe in God is that there are two possibilities. Either God exists or God doesn't exist. And there are two possible choices you could make. You could believe or not believe. And if you believe in God, but God doesn't exist, perhaps you waste a little bit of time attending church services or in prayer. But if you don't believe in God and God does exist, you may spend eternity in damnation. And there's an asymmetry between those two outcomes. The bad outcome of believing in God if God doesn't exist is not that bad, at least compared to the bad outcome of not believing in God if God does exist. And so Pascal argued, even if you find it very unlikely that God does exist, you are better off playing your cards safely and believing that God does exist because then you avoid the risk of an infinitely bad outcome of suffering in hell for eternity. So he argued that you should spend time doing things like taking communion and speaking to your friends who are believers in order to get yourself to believe because these are excellent, compelling reasons to want to be a believer. But many people find it unpersuasive that you actually can get yourself to believe in those cases. Maybe all you can do is spend time with believers rather than with friends who are atheists. And maybe if you do that, eventually you'll believe. But it's very difficult, at least, to get yourself to believe directly, even in a case where the stakes are so important. So when we talked about Ronnie and whether he wants to go to the dance, we used this uh, Benjamin Franklin-esque metaphor of drawing up a pro and con list. These are reasons to do it. These are reasons not to do it, something like that. And we cited there will be dancing at the party as a reason that goes in the pro list. In the case of Pascal's wager, isn't the risk of eternal damnation something that ought to go on the pro list when you're trying to decide whether or not to believe in God? Absolutely. So philosophers who take this idea of counting in favor of something to uh, relate to the important notion of a reason will be inclined to the view that that is a reason in favor of believing in God. But notice that's a very unusual reason to believe in God. It's not like the paying attention to the wonder in the natural world or the unlikelihood that life as sophisticated as ours could have come to exist without the right fine-tuning of the physical laws and the right circumstances or other kinds of arguments that are offered as evidence that there is a divine creator. And it's not like the case of Caroline's smile. So it's very different. And so it also seems that it's not relevant to whether somebody knows that God exists. If the only reason for which somebody believes that God exists is because they are afraid of eternal damnation, then you might think that even if God does exist, this person, though believing in God, is still not in a position to know that God exists. 
And so for that reason, people often want to draw a distinction between reasons like this, if they are to count it as reasons at all, and ordinary reasons for belief. Yeah, so I guess, right. So in the one case, you have a reason to believe in God, but it's not like that's evidence in favor of believing God. In the other cases you just discussed, there's actual evidence in favor of believing God. So what we're doing is we're drawing a distinction between reasons for believing things that are evidence-based and reasons for believing things that are not evidence-based. That's a very natural inference to draw, but I would resist it. So it's true that the contrast that we just considered is an example where we're contrasting evidence, as in Caroline's smile, which is evidence of her being happy, with a non-evidential consideration. And this leads many philosophers to believe that the distinction we're after just is that distinction between reasons that are evidence and reasons that aren't. I'm inclined to think, however, that the interesting distinction, although we can draw a distinction between reasons that are evidence and reasons that aren't, some of the earmarks that I pointed to of the reason to believe that Caroline is happy, like that it could affect whether you know that she's happy, that it's easy to believe that she's happy without going to special, elaborate, indirect means like putting yourself in the company of other people who believe that Caroline is happy uh, or only listening to arguments on one side about whether she's happy. Those kinds of features extend to reasons that aren't evidence but are still different from the kind of argument that Pascal gave. So what you're saying is that there's a third kind of reason aside from the Pascal-like reasons to believe that God exists and the things like the design argument, uh, the evidence-based reasons. Absolutely, at least in the following sense. Just like we can think of there being reasons or things that go in the pros column of whether to believe something, there can also be things that go in the cons column, reasons against believing something. And I'm very sympathetic to the view that only evidence goes in the pros column for a belief when we're paying attention to what we might call the right kind reasons, things that are like what's going on in the Caroline case and in the fine-tuning argument, but not in the Pascal's argument case. But in the case of reasons against believing, the cons of believing, I think that other kinds of considerations can factor in besides evidence that it's not true. Well, that's a pretty striking result. What would be an example of that? So the example I'm most sympathetic to is just the risk of relying on a belief if you're wrong. So let me give an example that uh, is people have often discussed in the philosophical literature. So suppose that you are driving home from work on Friday afternoon and you need to deposit your paycheck. But as you pass the bank, you realize that there are long lines that go out the door. So you need to make a decision about whether to stop and wait in line or go home and come back on another day. And let me distinguish two versions of the case. So in one version of the case, it doesn't matter very much whether the check is deposited before Monday. If you come back on Saturday morning and the bank is closed and you're wrong in your memory or they've changed their policy, then you can always deposit your check on Monday and the only harm is that you'll have wasted a trip on Saturday morning. 
In another version of the case, the stakes are very high. Your mortgage payment comes due on Sunday. You need to deposit the check in order for your mortgage payment to clear. If your mortgage payment doesn't clear, the bank will foreclose on your house. If the bank forecloses on your house, they'll move your furniture into the street and the neighbor kids will steal it and things will be very bad. And if things will be so bad, there's a, a risk of believing that the bank will be open on Saturday morning and hence not waiting in line today and coming back on Saturday. Because if you rely on that and are wrong, then very bad things could happen. And I believe that that kind of risk, uh, relying on a belief and being wrong, can in some cases be a reason against believing. Okay, right. So there seems to be a difference between situations in which what I'm trying to decide is or isn't true is important for me and situations where it's not important for me. And in situations where it's not very important for me, there's a low cost to just going ahead and believing it. Because if I'm wrong, well, whatever. But if the thing that I'm trying to figure out is the fact happens to be very important for me, a lot turns on whether or not this thing is true, then in those cases, sometimes the prudent thing to do would be not to believe it. Uh, I think that's true, yeah. is that sometimes when it's very important, that can help to make it more rational or prudent to not form a belief about the matter in question. However, let me take issue with one thing that you did say about the case. I don't think it's just a matter of how important the question is, because many questions and the question of whether the bank will be open tomorrow on Saturday is one of them, are questions where, as I would put it, the stakes of being wrong are higher for one answer than for the other answer. So if you believe the bank will be open on Saturday and are wrong about that, then you'll leave now, count on the fact that you can come back on Saturday morning, the bank will be closed, your paycheck won't get deposited, the bank will foreclose on your house, they'll move your furniture into the street, and the kids will steal it. And so very bad things will happen. However, if you believe the bank won't be open on Saturday, and it is, then the downside is just that you spend more time in line than you would have had to if you would have come back on Saturday. And so the stakes of being wrong in that direction are very low. And so even when we have one question about whether the bank will be open, the stakes can be higher on one side than the other. And so it matters which side we're talking about. I would say that in this case, the importance is a reason against believing the bank will be open, but not a reason against believing it won't be open. So it seems like there are a number of things we can do when we're confronted with these different reasons. When we're trying to make up our mind about what to think, we could think that something's true, we could think it's wrong, or we could just back away and think neither of the options. How does that compare with the way we were talking about there being pro and con with, with believing? That's right. So, for example, to go back to the Pascal case, we often distinguish between theism, atheism, and agnosticism. So if you're a theist, you believe that God does exist. If you're an atheist, you believe that that's not true. God, you believe that God doesn't exist. And if you're an agnostic, you're not sure. You neither believe that God does exist nor believe that God doesn't exist. And so philosophers sometimes call this third option a matter of withholding belief. So you 
that's just a way of saying that you aren't making up your mind or maybe that you've decided to not make up your mind. And once we distinguish this possibility that you cannot make up your mind about something, we know that there are always at least these three choices that you can make whenever you're wondering about some question is you can conclude that the answer is yes, you can conclude the answer is no, or you could decide to wait to make up your mind or perhaps not to make it up at all because there isn't enough evidence. And so when we're comparing those three options, there are two different ways we could think about how the reasons figure. So to go back to the, um, the Benjamin Franklin analogy where we have pros and cons, Franklin suggested that uh, when you're making a decision about some question, you should start by making a list of all the considerations in favor and all the considerations against. And then you could go through your list and when you find a reason in favor and a reason against that seem like they balance each other out, you could cross them out and sort of pay attention to the reasons that are left over. Similarly, if you find two in favor and three against, you could strike the five of them out and so on and make your decision in that way. And that way of thinking about it in terms of pros and cons only pays attention to one action. Either you're going to do it or you're going to not do it. And so if we apply that to belief, there are reasons in favor of the belief and then the reasons against the belief. Here's another model that's very similar to Franklin's model. Don't think of just one action at a time, but think of the various possibilities. So if you're deciding, for example, who to award some prize to, you might not just consider the question of whether to award it to Michelle. In favor of Michelle, against Michelle, you might want to have more columns on your table. You might want to have a column for Michelle, a column for Abby, a column for Ryan, and so on for each of the possibilities. Maybe an extra column for don't award the prize to anybody or for award it to more than one person. So that each of your columns are exclusive in the sense that you can't do more than one. But they're also exhaustive, which means that they're all the things you could do. And if you think about your choice this way, then what you should do is take the action that out of all the columns of your table has the most reasons in it. And we can think about the belief case that way too. So if we think about reasons to believe, and the op- we know the options include both believing it's false and also withholding or not making up your mind, being agnostic, then we could think of that decision in terms of those three possibilities. So we talked about how some of our reasons not to believe something might involve evidence that we have, and some of our reasons not to believe something might involve other kinds of things, like in Pascal's wager. Does that correspond to a distinction between thinking that something isn't true and withholding judgment altogether? Close. So earlier I distinguished between two kinds of reasons not to believe something, including evidence that it's not true. And I gave the example of the risk of believing it and relying on that and being wrong. And intuitively, evidence that it's not true is reason to believe it's not true. After all, evidence that it is true is reason to believe it's true. And so applying the very same reasoning to evidence that it's not true should lead us to think that evidence that is not true counts in favor of believing it's not true. And similarly, I would say that the risk of believing something and being wrong seems like it supports 
not making up your mind or withholding rather than supporting believing it's false. So just because the stakes are high and your mortgage payment is coming due, that doesn't give you any reason to believe that the bank won't be open tomorrow on Saturday. It just gives you reason to not believe that it will be open on Saturday. And so that can seem like it's a reason to withhold. And so that's a way that I've been tempted in the past to think about it. And that way of thinking about it, I think, makes clear why we should expect there to be reasons against belief that aren't evidence that it's false, just because there are these three options. There's a third option to withhold besides the option of believing that it's not true. In fact, however, I've come to believe that it actually makes an important difference whether we think about things on the original Benjamin Franklin model, where we only compare reasons in favor to reasons against, versus if we think about things on the what you might call the generalized Franklin model, where we think about things in terms of reasons in favor of each of the alternatives. Yeah, so you mentioned that you used to favor what we're calling the uh, generalized Franklin model, the model in which uh, we don't just consider two alternatives, believe the thing or believe that it's false. Rather, we consider three alternatives, believe the thing, believe that it's false, or withhold belief. You mentioned that you used to favor that model, but now you're sort of going back to the original Franklin model where, where the two alternatives on the table are believe the thing or believe that it's false. So what sparked that transition? Well, one thing that's very suggestive is the fact that, as we noted in the bank case, there's an important difference between believing that the bank will be open tomorrow and believing that it won't be open tomorrow. Uh, as I put it earlier, the stakes are high for believing it will be open, but they're low for believing it won't be open. And so that's an important distinction we might want to make. Now, if we attribute what's going on in this case to a reason to withhold or to not make up your mind, a reason to withhold is an alternative both to believing that the bank will be open and also to believing that it won't be open. And so the question is how can reasons to withhold be affected by stakes in this way, in a way that's asymmetric if what we're looking at is reasons that count in favor of withholding. And I earlier had some ideas about that, but I now think a better way of thinking about it is that there are reasons against belief, which include among them reasons to believe the opposite, but also include further reasons. So there are further reasons against belief, among them these stakes types of considerations. Um, but that in reasons against believing, one thing, namely that the bank will be open, they're not thereby also reasons against believing uh, the opposite, that the bank won't be open. And that can also help to solve another problem that was very puzzling for my earlier view. And that's a problem about why it should be that when the evidence is tied, that you've got equally good evidence, for example, that Caroline is happy and that she's not happy, or equally good evidence for one scientific theory and for another, why it is that you shouldn't believe either. And so this is something that many epistemologists have pointed out, that in cases where the evidence is tied, you should remain agnostic. You shouldn't believe one thing rather than the other. In action, it's often the case that when the reasons are tied, it's fair to do either. But with belief, when the evidence is tied, the answer is that you should do neither. And so if we think about this on the generalized Franklin model, then it has to turn out that the reasons to withhold are always better than 
the evidence in cases where the evidence is tied. But it's actually very puzzling how that could be, because in order for it to be true, the reasons to withhold have to keep getting better as the evidence gets better, because evidence can be tied either because there's not very much evidence on either side, or because there's lots of evidence on either side. And so in order to keep up and always win, the reasons to withhold would have to somehow get better with the evidence. Because if they were always that good, then it would never make sense to believe without lots and lots and lots of evidence. And it is sometimes okay to believe without lots of evidence. And so the switch to the original Franklin model helps allow for this because if instead of thinking about reasons to withhold, we're thinking about reasons against belief, that always includes the evidence that the belief is not true. And that's why in some sense they will get better as the evidence that it's not true gets better. And that can work without getting implausible predictions about other cases. So many philosophers, as we discussed in our episode with Jason Bridges on contextualism, many philosophers have been interested in this case regarding whether the bank is open in both high-stakes and low-stakes situations. The moral that many philosophers have drawn from this is that knowledge itself is radically context-dependent. So in, in some circumstances, what it takes to count as knowing something is a lower bar than what it takes to count as knowing something in other circumstances. You've argued that there's actually something deeply puzzling about that whole idea and that this new way of modeling reasons for and against belief can help make it seem less puzzling. How does that go exactly? Uh, That's absolutely right. I I think it's important to distinguish, however, between two different morals that philosophers have tried to draw from cases like the bank case and use the expression context-sensitive, which I think can be a misleading expression, and I want to distinguish between those two morals. So some philosophers think that knowledge is context-sensitive in the sense that when people in different conversations use the word knows, what it takes for their claims to be true are slightly different. So two people could be talking about the very same situation, and one could use the word knows to say truly that the person in that situation knows, and the second person could use the word knows to say truly that the person in that situation doesn't know. And so that's sometimes called the context sensitivity or contextualism about knowledge. And the kind of case that I discussed, the bank case, was originally introduced into the philosophical literature to motivate that kind of view. There were philosophers who suspected that this idea about knows, that what it takes for a sentence that uses the word knows to be true, could vary in different conversations, could be used to solve other philosophical problems, and they wanted to find independent linguistic evidence that it was true. And so they introduced cases like this. But once uh, philosophers began to think about cases like this, a different moral began to emerge. And notice that when I introduced the case, I didn't describe anybody using a sentence using the word knows. I just talked about what might be a reason in some case. And we can use the same kind of description to motivate the idea that it's easier to know that the bank will be open when the stakes are low than to know when the stakes are high. And That claim is one that you can make in one particular conversation using the word knows only once. 
and there's no explanation of why that would seem okay according to this philosopher who believes that the word knows varies from conversation to conversation. So this motivates a different moral of the story, which is that knowledge is context-sensitive, not in the sense that in different conversations people can mean slightly different things by knows, but that in any conversation when we're talking about what somebody knows, whether they know can depend on features of their situation including surprising features that people didn't ordinarily think affect whether you know, like how much was at stake for them. And I think this intuition is robust and that if we take care to ask whether it's easier to know when the stakes are low than when the stakes are high, as opposed to just describing one case where the stakes are low and another where the stakes are high and seeing if people both think that they don't know in one case and that they do know in another case, then we can elicit a judgment that's shared by very many people that it is easier to know in one case than the other. It takes less evidence to know. And that's something that I think is true and requires explanation. The reason it's so puzzling is that it does not seem like Pascalian arguments, like the wager about whether God exists, are the kind of thing that can give knowledge or the kind of thing that can interfere with knowledge. So if you believe you have excellent evidence that God doesn't exist, but you think that Pascal's wager is a persuasive motivation to try to believe that God exists, you're not going to think that you fail to know merely because you find Pascal's argument persuasive as a reason to try to get yourself to believe. You might still think that you know that God doesn't exist or trying to stop knowing that. Okay. And so I think it's a piece of data that Pascal's argument doesn't affect whether you know. And that's led many people to think that practical considerations aren't the kind of thing that could matter for knowledge. So the distinction I made between so-called right kind reasons and wrong kind reasons, and the idea that that's not exactly the distinction between evidence and non-evidential considerations, but allows that there can be right kind reasons against belief that aren't evidence, allows for this explanation because these stakes-related considerations could be reasons against belief and could hence interfere with knowledge. And so that, I think, allows for a very satisfying explanation of how it could be that what you know can depend on things like what's at stake for you. So it seems like what you're saying is that uh, in a case where it really does matter, I might, uh, with the same evidence as someone else for whom it doesn't matter, have different knowledge. In particular, I might not know that the bank is going to be open because it really matters to me. But if it didn't matter at all, it would be fine to say that I did know. Is that right? I think that's right. So I think that there are going to be pairs of cases that are the same in respect of what evidence the person has in those situations. But because of differences in what's at stake for them, one knows and the other doesn't. I think it's actually, in thinking about these, we need to be careful because in order to elicit this intuition that there are such pairs of cases, one procedure that philosophers have used is to describe a particular pair of cases and see whether conversational participants agreed that a person did not know in one case and did know in the other case. 
but this is actually a, um, a very unreliable way to check and see if people will agree that there are such pairs. Because even if everybody agrees that there are some pairs of these cases, it can be the case that when we describe a particular pair of cases, they don't think this is one of those pairs. And so if I describe a particular pair of cases to you like the bank case, you may think that both people know that the bank will be open, but for example, that it's a bad idea for one person to count on that knowledge. Or you might think that neither know, in addition to the possibility of thinking that one knows but not the other. And so I think the important phenomenon has to do with whether it's harder to know, and hence that there are some pair of cases like this, that's more important than whether the actual bank cases are among them. And so what I actually think is that the bank cases may not be among them. I think it's very important how, in considering the stakes that interfere with knowledge, and certainly the way that they can make it, you need more evidence in order for it to be rational for you to believe. It makes a big difference whether the stakes are stable features of your situation or unstable features. So in the bank case, it's only until you make the decision to drive home that the stakes are high for you on believing that the bank will be open tomorrow. Once you're home and you're past the bank hours, the stakes are no longer high on believing that it'll be open tomorrow. We could also have cases where the stakes are always high. For example, you might have a belief about whether you have an allergy to uh, something like penicillin. And those are cases where the stakes are going to remain high because having an allergy to penicillin is something that puts you at great risk for taking penicillin or related uh, drugs, but not taking it leaves you various alternatives. And that will always be the case. And so I think that those are cases that are actually clearer and more likely to be the cases where you can, the stakes can make a difference in whether you know. Mark Schroeder, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, it's been wonderful. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.